0: Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level.
2: Hillary used to say this line in Iowa, my only promise to you is that I won't overpromise. But, you know, you don't need a room full of pollsters to tell you that voters prefer, you know, charismatic men who wildly overpromise.
3: Hello, and welcome to Elster Client Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode is with Amy Chosek, who is author of the new book, Chasing Hillary, 10 Years, Two Presidential Campaigns, and One Intact Glass Ceiling. Chosek was the New York Times' lead Hillary Clinton reporter in 2016. She also covered her in 2008, and she's written, I've read a lot of campaign books in my time, I don't think I have read one that is this honest about what it is like to report on a campaign. It is much more of a memoir than it is a book about the campaign itself, but but it's fascinating in that way, and, and Chozik is more reflective than I think most in the media have been about what coverage of Hillary Clinton has been like, what are the dynamics that drove it, and what should the media think about its own role in the campaign now. So I thought this was a pretty interesting conversation to have that got into a lot of things, as you'll hear, that I've been unsettled about since the campaign myself. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, you can email me at com with guest ideas, feedback, whatever you may like. That said, here is Amy Chozik. Amy chozak, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: So you've written... I think the most honest book I have read, perhaps ever, about what it's like to, to cover a campaign um, and, and and how we cover campaigns and what covering them that way does to, to the reporters on it, does to the campaigns under coverage. So I wanted to begin with that. What is the point of campaign coverage? What are we trying to achieve?
2: It's a really good question. And I covered Hillary Clinton in 2008 and then 2016. So I felt like I had a glimpse of how media had changed even in that time span, and and I think campaign reporting had changed. Some would say declined. Um, I mean, because you think, is the purpose of covering the campaign to inform the electorate? I mean, what I always— thought and hope to think on my best days of, of covering Hillary was, how can I inform better inform voters so they know who this person is, which is difficult with a candidate who everybody thinks they already know. And so whether that was policy or digging into biographical chapters of her life, which took a lot of digging around in archives in Arkansas and talking to friends, um, none of which happens, you know, in the thick of, of the daily news cycle. I think it's, it's a good point, kind of the fundamental goal of campaign coverage, should it be to inform the electorate so when they go to the voting polls, they feel better informed about their choices? I would say yes.
3: And if that's true, one of the things that was really interesting to me in the book was you talk about what the experience of seeing everything over and over and over again is like. Um, you, You read at one point that, you know, the way you were starting to see things, even how Hillary flipped a stake with cynicism. Um, and you talk about going to Flint and, and talking to someone, uh, a pastor there and saying, you know, why do you think she's here? Is it just to, to win over the black vote? And he says, I don't, I don't care why she came. Where's it, Where's everyone else? Do you think that there's a way in which we journalists who who cover these campaigns and experience these campaigns by seeing the same speeches endlessly in this way that is not the way the public experiences them, that it breeds a A contempt and a jadedness and a cynicism, a tendency to be seeing the whole thing as a theater um, and, and artificial, which in some ways certainly it is rather than seeing it through the eyes of the public or, or being able to keep an, a sense of it through the eyes of the public?
2: Yes, and actually I have a kind of, I think I have a unique vantage point in that because when I was first put on campaign coverage, I had been a foreign correspondent uh, based in Tokyo for the Wall Street Journal. And when they sent me to Japan, my editor, I said, I don't speak Japanese, you know, I'm fluent in Spanish, send me, send me to a Spanish speaking country. And they said, no, we need fresh eyes that reporters who've been in Japan too long don't think that these things are stories to, American readers and when you have a fresh perspective you know the singing toilets like are, <laughs> are a good story or whatever it is that seems normal to either Japanese reporters or reporters who've been there for years And so before an editor of the journal had become the um, The Wall Street Journal had become the Washington bureau chief in 2007 and said how'd you like to go to Iowa and cover Hillary Clinton so I didn't know what a caucus was I, d- I had vaguely heard of Barack Obama but you know I had a fresh perspective. I saw stories that reporters that had been covering politics for years didn't see. I mean, I wrote—this is not, you know, substantive, but I wrote a front-page story about campaign hookups, you know, it was kind of fun that everyone thought, but we all know that. Um, Then when I reemerged in Iowa in 2016, having covered politics for eight years, it was, um, you know, yeah, you you see things a little bit more cynically. There's also a lot more instinct, I think, to um, beat your competitors on minutiae, sort of to impress other reporters about— these scooplets. Um, there was a insatiable appetite for those, and when I was at the Wall Street Journal, it was partly because I, I think there it was pre-Twitter, and but there was much more emphasis on what they called. It sounds really pretentious. I make fun of myself in the book, but scoops of ideas. Um, you know, find an angle that nobody else is covering, and and do that rather than jumping on the on the thing that everybody's obsessing about.
3: You have a, a pretty interesting section on on this tendency, um, where you write that if I wanted to thrive on the politics desk, I would need to do more than feel good pieces like the ones I'd written on Bill Clinton's charitable work in Africa. I would need capital T tension, and, and this strikes me as a as a deep way in which media coverage does have a bias. It's not a left right bias, but a, a bias towards a certain kind of coverage. So, so what is capital T tension? What what kind of story gets you on the front page?
2: No I think there's a there is a bias towards a good story. Um, I think in every news organization and often those stories require tension I mean I say later on tension doesn't have to be the investigation that you know into the Clinton Foundation that makes everyone angry that tension could be the uh, biographical story about Hillary's relationship with her very difficult father or the tension of her being um, a, a, a young activist for the Children's Defense Fund going undercover in Alabama to investigate school segregation. And she went into these segregation academies, and if she had been caught Um, You know, it was scary for a woman then. And so I think there has to be some element of tension to hold hold the reader. There often has to be. And actually, and and you you know this better than anyone, I think you can write policy stories with with tension. You know, I wrote about Hillary trying to craft her economic agenda, consulting 200 domestic advisors uh, right before the campaign. And this tension of how to, you know, appease the anger in the electorate um, without coming out sounding like you're advocating class warfare.
3: One of the things I thought was really interesting in your book was it was really open about what I would consider the media's biases. I think we talk a lot about the media having a left bias or right bias, which I I don't want to dismiss. I think that there are dimensions of, of that. But I think there are all these other biases that are actually more important, things that we are, things that drive a lot more of our coverage than political opinion, that I think would be sort of interesting for us to explore, and 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 one of them here is it seems to me that we just have a huge bias towards stories that are slow dripping scoop and scandal, right? We have a huge bias towards stories where things are coming out, the politician doesn't want the thing to come out, and the thing is coming out slowly, so it it, it keeps going up. Um, and and the email story always felt like that to me, that it that it fit into that bias. What what are what are the biases that you see? What are the things that, that you saw as a campaign reporter that there may be a kind of story that have a little bit of an easier time rising in the media?
2: Well, with Hillary, it was hard to get any story to rise in the media, to be honest. I mean, you know, it was like <laughs> I, I write in the in the book about just kind of traveling with her. Well, the story was always Trump or it would be, um, you know, her reaction to Trump would get in would get in the news. Um, so, hmm. Yeah, I I mean, the email story, and I think a lot about this, and I don't know if I give the most satisfying answer to saying that it just became like a fever that swept through. And this, to be clear, this isn't specific to the Times. It swept through every newsroom, turning us all into, you know, Whirlpool set on the wash and repeat cycle. I mean— I think you're right because these emails kept coming out and then you had the conflation and the final stretch of the campaign with the Podesta emails and the WikiLeaks releases that I think I think we have I think we sometimes forget like what the waitress in Ohio here. She's not necessarily following the intricacies of how Hillary or whether or not Hillary Clinton violated federal records requests. She's hearing tidbits of emails on the news coming from the talk radio, whatever it is, emails, emails, emails. And that, you know, will resonate.
3: Did you ever see Gallup had released during, I don't remember if they released it during the campaign or right after, but they these word clouds where they asked in a survey for people to say, you know, what what words have you heard? What words did you associate with the two candidates? And, you know, there are all these different words for Trump and, and nothing quite dominated. And with Hillary Clinton, the word cloud was just like this huge emails.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: And I always thought, and I, I will say, like, Flatly, like I covered the emails, right? I like we at Vox covered the emails. You know, we 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 were part of this coverage too, and I always felt really not bad about covering the emails because I think if you cover them proportionately, and, and we can talk about what that means, it, it was reasonable. But at, for the media, that that was a real indictment. That I don't, I never believed that there was an argument that that was the most important story about Hillary Clinton, either about her or her personality or the way she'd be president. And the fact that that was the story people heard the most about her, that that felt to me like something that requires some real self-reflection on the part of the press.
2: Yeah. I mean, and that's exactly what I said in the book. I, I, I think the leading candidate for the presidency being under FBI investigation is a story. Um, and you could debate the merits of the investigation, but it it is a story. I, and I really grew to resent and regret that it became the only story, you know. And I think there's a couple reasons, few, a few reasons for that. I mean, with Trump, there were so many different scandals. There were his taxes and women and the way he treated his employees and his bankruptcies that I think there was no one crisp narrative of, oh, that's the thing that sticks. And with Hillary, it was... It was all emails. and um, and yeah, I do I do regret that it kind of enveloped everything, and, and including my own reporting, you know, I spent a year trying to talk this feminist, Democratic woman, Sarah Ehrman, who who Hillary lived in her apartment in Washington right after law school when she was working on the Watergate committee. And she was moving to Arkansas to marry Bill Clinton. And Sarah, who had been a mentor, uh, offered to drive her down and tried to talk her out of it the whole time. She said, you're throwing your life away. You're the most gifted woman I've ever met. You could do anything you want. I wanted Sarah to tell me the story of this road trip and this kind of vulnerable, different side of Hillary. It took a year to convince her to talk on the record. I brought her I brought her babkas. I went to her apartment and had lovely afternoons talking to her to try to win her trust. Finally, she tells me this story, and it's really a sympathetic side of Hillary. It's this kind of vulnerable, searching young woman who the public rarely sees. I put this story together. It was my favorite—probably my favorite story I've ever written. It uh, posted on The Times' website three hours before James Comey sent his letter to Congress. It never even ran in the paper. Um, so, you know, I think the email's— became such a story that it enveloped everything even those stories that you know i had hoped and i'm sure others had hoped would break through and connect with voters
3: <laughs> that's such a, i read that in a book that that's such a I think all journals have stories like that, but that's a yeah. particularly tragic.
2: <laughs> oh, it's just like to me, it epitomized everything. I was like, this epitomized this whole campaign. <laughs> like, I tried to do a sympathetic story. The campaign tried to kill it. They they didn't trust me to write a, you know, a, a nice. They never trusted these biographical stories. They like to be controlling, and I finally get it out. And Comey sent his letter.
3: Yep. <laughs> so, the, the I want to stay emails for a couple minutes here. So one you said this earlier and I just want to I want to say it again in, in case people missed it we're going to talk about emails but there are depending on how you count them somewhere between two and four different email stories mm-hmm. there's the Hillary Clinton State Department emails there's the Podesta emails I mean there's there are a bunch of one I think problem for Hillary Clinton is that the kind of scandal-ish stories that got told about her all could be Put under the same rubric, which gave them a kind of amplification. Where if one had been about phone calls, I think it would have been (laughs) would have been a little bit easier. But one thing that always struck me is that the email stories, both the state and then particularly the Podesta email stories, I always felt the media was very unclear on what they were about in a way that, like, I understood what Whitewater was about. Whitewater was about the idea of a possibly corrupt land deal. I understood what the Monica Lewinsky story was about. I understood what Watergate was about, right? You can go through a lot of scandals. You say, okay, like, this is about corruption. It's about abuse of power. It's about immoral behavior in in the White House. It's about the possibility of perjury. You know, it's about collusion with a foreign government trying to influence American policy. And I felt that given how often we covered various iterations of email stories, there was a stunning absence of, well, what are we covering here? Like, what 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 is the question we're exploring? And and so as somebody who did some of this coverage and, and was at a place that, I think, led a lot of this coverage, what were these stories about?
2: But, but, Ezra, that's sort of what I learned. And I had been, I think I was naive when I was first put on this beat um, for, at the Times. I was naive that, like, you don't really know what a story is about when you write about the Clintons. I thought... I could think it was about one thing, uh, you know, was there skirting of federal records requests, and then it takes on a life of its own. I mean, this is a this is a pretty vapid example, but uh, the Clinton Global Initiative, uh, young press minder had I'd gone in, who was supposed to keep track of reporters followed me into the restroom, right? Um, and I wrote like a lighthearted blog post about like they're keeping careful eye on reporters. I I really I. Should have put more thought into that, but I was naive about the kind of ecosystem that Clinton coverage ends up in. I mean, all of a sudden it was like Fox News and InfoWars, and the Clintons are following reporters to the restroom, (laughs) and it took on this like monster life of its own that I hadn't anticipated. So I think some of it is like, you know, you can write the story one way and you think it's about this thing, and then it becomes this monster that you have no control over. And I tried to, you know, as I learned more about covering them, I tried to always keep that in mind when I wrote stories. Like, are we writing about, you know, John Podesta's emails in a way that informs our readers, but how will that also be interpreted or misinterpreted by this machine?
0: Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Startups. You don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money.
3: How much were we in the media just writing about our own relationship with the Clintons? That there's this long-running—John Allen, who who wrote for Vox a, a pretty fascinating piece after covering the Clintons for years, wrote about the Clinton rules and the particular ways in which the media has an ongoing psychodrama with, with the Clintons. And part of that psychodrama is a feeling of secrecy, the feeling that the Clintons are always hiding something, holding something back from them, don't trust them and that the 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 emails were somehow i mean both a real story but part of the the, the interest in it was that they were also a meta commentary on on that story on that on that grievance a real grievance that the media has had with bill and hillary clinton now going back multiple multiple decades
2: i would say that even the the pneumonia diagnosis and hiding it from her top aides and, and the press in the final stretch of the around Labor Day and the final stretch of the election fed into the same narrative. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder about this alternate universe and and it's maybe silly to think about it. But if Hillary had come out at that first U.N. press conference about her emails and just had some like radical truth telling and said, why would I want you people reading through my emails after what you put me and my husband through in the White House, and it turned out to be nothing. And Whitewater, we lost money on it, but it was, you know, this scandal that enveloped our whole um, pres- his whole presidency. And why would I want? Why would I want you people reading through my emails? <laughs> I mean, she probably couldn't have ever gotten away with that. But I do have this like alternate universe where she came out with some, you know, radical Trumpian uh, <laughs> Trumpian statement. Was yeah, I didn't want you people reading through it, and I'm done talking about this.
3: This seemed like a real—this seemed to me like a tragedy of all this because you write, I think, in a really interesting passage about about exactly that, about how you think Donald Trump would have handled. Like, he would have walked out and said, fuck you. Yeah. You're not going to read my emails. I'm super smart for not doing this. He that makes said me at smart. Point, yeah. he, he said at one point, that's why I use couriers. Like he actually said, like, you're not going to read my emails because I pay a dude to take anything (laughs) I think is sensitive to someone else by hand. So none of you can ever read it. Mm -hmm. And one thing about the Clintons that has always felt strange to me, Um, strange to me in the way we in the media react to it, is that they somehow fall like in between no disclosure, and and un, for the media anyway, enough disclosure, mm-hmm. right? Hillary Clinton apologizes, but not enough. They 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 release things, but it's never quite enough of the things. And there's some way in which the psychodrama of the relationship exists within the partial admitting of fault, and like the the partial playing by the rules, but also the feeling the media has that they're never quite all the way in, that they're always holding something back, that they're always playing a game behind the game, and. You know, if they're facing a truly radically transparent politician, fair enough. But this was in an election with Donald Trump, the least transparent politician we've ever had. And there's something to me about the ways in which Clinton's willingness to apologize, which he did on the emails ultimately many times, her willingness to you know, try to release things, to, to 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 play at least somewhat by the rules, ended up being a hindrance for her against this guy who the rules ended up having no power because he never would recognize they had any moral force, because he would never recognize there was any reason to apologize, there was any reason to release tax returns. He just said, you know, screw off. And eventually the media just—I don't want to say we did. We kept working. Obviously, the, the Times was one of the only places that got some tax returns, but— there was something there in in the contrast between Trump and Clinton and the way even now people in the media are like, well, maybe if she'd been more like Trump, it, w- it would have worked out better. That, that feels like not a problem on her end, but a problem on our end.
2: Yeah, I think the relationship with the media was mutual. I think I do think she had built up, you know, a ton of scar tissue from what she and and her husband had been—what th- she in particular had been through over the years, um, over all of her years of campaigning, over coming onto the national stage and, you know, making what I think was a head-of-her-time statement defending her career And she didn't want to stay at home and bake cookies and have teas. I mean, she had been through so much fire that I do think when she emerged in 2016, the tension there was was mutual. I mean, she really—you know, it was a cycle because she looked at us and thought we were not interested in policy, um, only driven by clicks, very young young, didn't understand, um, you know, a lot of the context of her career. And so she didn't talk to us much. And in turn, we would do these stories like, you know, there were literally stories counting her head nods during policy roundtables, you know. (laughs) Um, And so it was I think it was it was a cycle. And the relationship, you know, had had long predated her current press corps. And there was there was a lot of scar tissue on both sides built up. But in terms of running against Trump, I mean, I think we have to assess each candidate Um, almost in a vacuum. I mean, I think it's a dangerous proposition to look at a candidate and say, this is a big scandal. This is July 4th, and the leading candidate for the presidency is walking into the J. Edgar Hoover building with six lawyers to testify to the FBI. That is a big story. And even though her opponent was so beyond the pale and had so many scandals that seem worse, I don't think you can say, well, we'll we're not going to cover this this scandal that would be a huge, huge news story in any other election year because her opponent is so beyond the pale. I mean, I think that's a dangerous kind of proposition for the reporters to make.
3: I I agree with that. I I don't think you can do that. But I I do think there's the question of proportionality, how Mm -hmm. much we cover something, the, the, the way we frame it. One of the things that always struck me as a little faux-naive about the way we in the media covered that story. I think that when you talk about the the State Department emails, right, the, the, the ones where there's a question of the way she handled um, classified information, the J. Edgar Hoover, you know, testimony, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Every reporter knows perfectly well that every politician they talk to all the time is constantly getting around records loss. We all have the experience of the congressmen switching over to Gmail when they want to tell us something that is not going to be on their official, you know, .gov email account. We all have the experience of press people saying, you know what, let me actually call you on this one. We have the experience. I mean, we we know this, right? We know that politicians, they do things in person if they don't want a written record. I actually always thought the most exculpatory thing about this was the idea that Hillary Clinton thought that the way that if she's going to do something truly sensitive, the way to do it was to take everything off so everything would then get looked at Mm -hmm. was a little bit ridiculous. And and so there's a, a way to me in which we lost the thread of this. Um, I always thought the best argument on the emails was that, hey, look, somewhere in here, possibly even in the deleted emails, Hillary Clinton is doing things that um, we should be concerned about. Almost certainly, I don't know if they're in the deleted emails, but Hillary was doing things that, you know, the public would have wanted to know about. It's just that there there was nothing different about that. I mean, that was true with all of them. And I I felt that the media allowed itself in some ways to get caught up in a, a uh, like technicalities around this where we sort of pretended to not know the bigger picture, which is that, yeah, none of these politicians are being transparent in that way, that they are all always all the time in ways that are more subtle and as such a little bit harder to track getting around these laws.
2: Yeah, and that was something, you know, I wrote in the book that aides would always tell me off the record. Are you kidding me? Obama does this and so-and-so does this. And it was like Hillary had her hands tied. She couldn't come out and say that. Um, And just, you know, she tried to say everybody does that and then we'd say she's being defensive. No, you're right. You're right. I mean, I don't don't know what to say except that uh, I I do think her campaign... and I don't mean to blame the victim, because I as I write, I think the volume and veracity of the emails, you know, was was a problem. But there was hard to change the conversation. You know, it's frustrating. You had a you had an, a, one of the best interviews with her during the whole cycle because you just like talked about policy. And that was who Hillary really was. And, you know, you really got a sense of what she believed. Um, in 2008, I had. A Very long interview with her and the the crust of the of the housing crisis and the financial crisis where she seemed um, came off as her brilliant self. And so but they turned down every request we had because they thought they're just going to get back to emails. She's and she's ahead. Why do we why do we do it? And uh, Trump would get on the phone and talk about America first for an hour, and Hillary would not talk about her foreign policy or her work for the Children's Defense Fund or her economic policies. And I do, I do believe that uh, those stories would have knocked emails off the front page. Um, and and made news, so I, I I think it's I think it's both ways. I mean, to get to your point, back to your point of the relationship, I think there was the, that scar tissue that that made her reluctant to do any kinds of interviews, especially when she felt very under assault for, as you said, something that that almost every elected official um, does in some in some way.
3: All right, let's knock emails off of the front page of the podcast. <laughs> Th- this thing you're getting at to me is the the most central question about Hillary Clinton, this feeling people have had forever that you hear in all of the coverage about her. I, I, I ended up writing a long piece on this, too. This, this Hillary you hear about or get glimpses of or see sometimes, you know, people describe as brilliant and warm and human and empathic, and then the Hillary that... Whether you see her on the campaign trail or she is covered this way on the campaign trail, I think people disagree on that. But who is, you know, artificial, defensive, forced, seems like she's really hating it. I mean, you you sort of describe her as the, 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 like the death march to victory. Why do you think there is such a wide gap between who not just many of Clinton's colleagues, but many in the press believe Clinton is and who she is covered or seen to be?
2: a couple reasons i mean one of the things that was frustrating was that her friends would would always say you know if only the country could see the person i see and and the media is the conduit to to explain the candidate to the country. And so if we never saw that person—I mean, in 2008, Hillary had a was a senator. She had a press corps she was used to schmoozing with. And they were these were tough guys. These were the New York press corps, you know, and, and they ended up being also in her campaign bus. And so she had a comfort level, I think, and would come back with a glass of wine and joke around with us and uh, on Valentine's call our significant others to apologize for keeping us away from them she had a lot of fun, I think. even it's, it's funny because she was losing, but she also like let her guard down and, um, and felt like she had nothing to lose. And so in 2016, it was very hard to communicate that side of Hillary when we never saw it, especially some of the newer reporters who'd never covered her before. Um, I found myself constantly talking to her friends, college roommates, everyone who had known her from every chapter of her life because I tried to get to know the real Hillary that way because I wasn't getting to see it in real time and and I think it's hard her friend Diane Blair said she has a funny wicked wacky side you know and I I would have liked to see that side so I could have communicated it to um to voters so it was it was a frustration I mean at the same time I think with Hillary she's always been such a lightning rod and people want Diane Blair her friend um of many years from Arkansas who passed away and left these these diaries of their conversations that ended up in the archives in Arkansas said that with Hillary, and this was like in the 90s, that people want, you know, moralist or Machiavelli, saint or sinner. In reality, Hillary is, is some of each and very much in between, like all of us. But with her, she was always, and I think still is always one or the other. I mean, people want to believe she's either a saint or a sinner. And the fact is she's, she's in between, like, like we all are.
3: One of the things I find so fascinating about that side of her, her lightning rodness, is how she has managed. I actually don't want to use the tenses that way. She has been, she's been made a lightning rod consistently, despite the fact that the way in which she is supposed to be controversial has often changed dramatically. So in the 90s, she's like this socialist hell feminist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, later she's this neoliberal sellout corporatist. And, and and there's this way in which um, somehow I actually don't think she changed all that much in any of these periods. But as things changed around her, she continuously came to represent the cleavages in our politics, or at least on the left side of our politics, in a way I think is weird. In a way that um, other politicians who have been around for a long time— did not manage to get put into this space of, you know, controversy and flux. Uh, you know, representing whatever people were upset about in politics, whatever was most controversial in politics in 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 that era. I'm curious why you think that is. Like, how how you think it is that Hillary Clinton could be both controversial as a as a hard leftist and then controversial as a. As a total sellout.
2: No, it's such a good point because when people were talking about, well, Biden should have run and Biden could have won. I'm like, oh, but you're going right. to attach the crime bill to Hillary Clinton. But Biden would have been well, he would have slid right past that. That would have been fine. You know, <laughs> like all the, and he every, wrote it. I know. I know he wrote it. I mean, that's the point. It was like and even NAFTA. I'm like, if you knew Hillary's friends in the White House she actually pushed back against welfare reform and NAFTA. And she was, you know, they called the, Bill Clinton's West Wing called the East Wing the Bolsheviks. You know, she was was actually behind this. What is she going to do, break with the president when she's first lady? But, you know, if you actually dig into her, Stances, she was against some of these things, quietly against. And then you have someone like Biden who people thought would would breeze right past all of these controversial positions of the 90s. I mean, this was a frustration for me. I write about this breakfast in New Hampshire. You know, Hillary had just like tied in Iowa and it looked like she was gonna lose in New Hampshire. And Bernie Sanders was saying she can't call herself a progressive. She's a centrist. And and I was like, God, you know, how frustrated she must be. For majority of the beginning of her career, she was this scary, bra-burning liberal feminist who was an affront to, you know, stay at home moms everywhere. And suddenly, as you, as you put it, she's this, this corporatist centrist. Sometimes I think she was always sort of ahead of her time and never of her time. It was like whatever era she was in, she found herself on the wrong side of the of the party or where the party was.
3: Um, but, not, but let me take now the other side of that, which is how does the Bolshevik, mm-hmm. the, the, the 90s Bolshevik, mm-hmm. the woman who gives this amazing, I'm always so fascinated by her, the commencement speech she gives when graduating from college, the one that gets published in oh, Life yeah. magazine, you know, which is this real cry of the 60s. How does that person end up not seeing, because this to me is the amazing thing about not seeing the problem with taking $675,000 for three speeches from Goldman Sachs?
2: I think she missed a lot of the domestic anger in the country when she was Secretary of State. I think she was a really involved senator talking to her constituents all the time. And then she was a really devoted Secretary of State traveling the world. And while she was gone, you know, bank bailouts and Occupy Wall Street and one per- the one rage over the 1% and healthcare reform, all of these things were happening um and I think when she got back, you know, she's such a student of policy. She understood them on an academic level, but she hadn't been sort of involved with her hands Getting her hands dirty on the ground in quite a while, and I think uh, those speeches sort of point to the tone deafness of of her emerging from the State Department and thinking, "Well, every politician buckwrecks. What's the big deal?" And she could have done that to the Fruit Growers Association and the and the Travel Agents Association of America, I think. But the, the idea of going to Wall Street was real miscalculation.
3: There's something else about this that I. Have come to think is pretty interesting about about later Clinton. Um, we all we all have. You, you talk about it in, in the book. We all have the stories we prewrote when it looked like she was going to win. Right when when you know all the models and the Upshot model is saying ninety three percent chance Hillary's got it. I think by the end Nate Silver was at eighty some percent. Huffington Post said there's only a two percent chance she lost. So a lot of us had done our prewriting. And and I had this story that I've been working on for a while about, you know, Hillary Clinton's political, what I called realism, you know, for better or for worse. One of the things that I found interesting about her, the more I tried to dig in and, and understand her politics, was that she had become more so than any politician I'd almost ever seen at the national level, a real defender of the political system as it exists Wherein her idea of why she should be president is that she understood that system better than anyone else did. And, and this wasn't just true in 2016. In 2008, I was at, I think back then it was called the, the Yearly Coast uh, convention. And there was a candidate forum. And Barack Obama was up there making his arguments about special interests, and, and Hillary Clinton got a related question. And she said, you know what? Not all lobbyists are bad. You know, they're lobbyists for nurses. or are lobbyists for unions. You can't just call everybody a special interest. And on some level, she's so right about that, right? The the, the way the system works, it has special interests, and, and different groups need to have representation within it. And on the other hand, th- there's, like, no other politician who would come out and say, like, lobbying, sometimes a good right. thing. Like, you got to right. have the lobbyists out there. And it seemed to me, you know, when I would hear her give her answers on Goldman Sachs and, and on virtually everything, that she had come to, to believe, and I'm not even saying wrongly, that something that was good about her was that she understood this was a transactional system. You needed to be talking to everybody, working with everybody. And that was how she was going to get things done when these more idealistic politicians like Obama, you know, would, would, would fall short. And this, to me, was the, the thing that Hillary Clinton never even tried really to sell with very, very occasional episodic differences. This this idea that, you know what, it's time to give up this idea of political revolutions and hope and change and just say, the system is slow. It doesn't always work the way we want, but what you need is somebody who gets it and is just gonna drive their way through it. And like, that's what I am. And I'm not sure you can win on that, but, but that struck me in the end is like the truth of her politics that she never quite wanted to say.
2: Completely. And that's sort of the tragedy that you can't win on that. I mean, she was also trying to say that in a year when a lot of voters just wanted to blow up the system. Um, so she had that working against her. Hillary used to say this line in Iowa that she came up with and believed that made her Brooklyn campaign staff sort of cringe. She said, my only promise to you is that I won't overpromise. And, you know, and I think she believed that a lot of the... Um, you know Obama's promises of being, bringing hope and change um, were, were unrealistic. She certainly believed that Bernie Sanders' promises at the time were completely unrealistic, and she didn't want to be that. But you know, I think you don't need a room full of pollsters to tell you that voters prefer, you know, charismatic men who wildly overpromise. And I think I think part of the catch 22 of her is that like she says these things that she really means, like the lobbyist line or even I would go to the deplorables line. She says people are always saying, you know, if only Hillary said what she really meant. I mean, you and I were just talking about if only she showed the real Hillary and said what she meant. And then she says something like that that is i think what she believes authentic in these wall street speeches you see her saying you know lincoln talked about having a private and public position and that's important to get things done um she says things that she believes and she gets completely attacked for them so it's a little bit like you can't you can't win i mean but but i think that's that that is what she believes i mean she believes in kind of getting Doing the work and trying to work within the system to change policy will, I think, she believes, impact the most people. I, g- I keep getting back to the story of her that I did of her going undercover in Alabama to investigate school segregation. If you remember during the primary, very contentious Bernie Sanders trying to reach out to black voters who overwhelmingly um, supported Hillary Clinton, and he his campaign released pictures of him marching in civil rights marches. I never thought of Hillary Clinton as out front with a banner. She was going and doing research in Alabama collecting evidence, and then she was going and filing a report with the Nixon administration to try to get that school to lose its tax exemption. And to me, that sort of exemplified how she believed you could impact the most people's lives. It wasn't being the loud person out front with the banner. It was buckling down, doing your research.
0: Be the most valuable business making your money work harder that's how you business differently Intuit QuickBooks banking services provided by Green Dot Bank member FDIC only funds and envelopes are in APY APY can change at any time
1: drowning in status updates and lost in endless emails break free with ClickUp.com the one app to replace them all imagine a world where your team collaborates effortlessly in one shared space no more chaos just ClickUp your projects tasks and communication unified at last Transform how you work with customizable views, seamless integration, and real-time updates. ClickUp is your shortcut to more productive days and happier teams. Join the millions of productive teams already streamlining their workflow. Visit ClickUp.com to get started.
3: But there's something gendered in this, right? I mean, something that has really seemed true to me is that we are more comfortable in the press. We in the press are more comfortable covering stereotypically male leadership styles, like confidently giving over-promising speeches in front of very big crowds than stereotypically female leadership styles, like working transactionally to find consensus within small groups. I mean, Hillary's better than most men at that, but that wasn't something that, that we in the press, I think, know how to cover the way we know how to cover, a, you know, a speech before 50,000 people who are all going wild.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really good point, and I think her campaign was sort of grappling with that issue because a lot of a, a couple people in her campaign, who were sort of newcomers to her world, said she's so great when she goes and like drops in on the Girl Scouts of America, or when she's in a coffee shop, or when she does these little events, and 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 they were very stuck in no, we need to do ra- rallies. I mean, there were other forces in her campaign saying we've got to get her out there on the stump, but so I think. Maybe maybe that maybe that kind of candidate, a female candidate, a policy minded candidate, you know, needs a different forum. And to the credit of the changes in media, you could go stop in at the Girl Scouts of America in Kentucky, which she did, and you could have it go all over cable news if you if you put the right media people in the room. Um, and so maybe it's a it's a rethinking of of campaigning and kind of the, does the big rally do the most to reach people um, and to show you know who she really is? I mean, they tried at the beginning with those policy roundtables, but they just felt felt so staged um, that it was I don't think it accomplished what sort of maybe her listening tour ahead of her Senate race did.
3: Yeah. But, you know, let let me turn the question on you. I mean, is there a way that when we cover campaigns that we could deploy our resources in the media more effectively? I mean, could we be crowding out more of our speech coverage with coverage of the way the legislature? I I don't I don't know the answer, but I, I feel like I, I worry we're going in the wrong direction. I worry that watching the way we now all chase Donald Trump's tweets, yep. we are getting so over our skis on public communication being the only thing that matters and being completely able to drive the agenda and how good you are at public communication driving the entire agenda. I just—I I, I feel like we are— Abdicating our responsibility on this to 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 think it through, and then we kind of say, "Well, yeah, but everybody else is going to cover the tweet, so we got to run and do it too, and crowd everything else out." That 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 doesn't feel to me like a satisfying answer.
2: No, and I mean, there's this sense that like the media really screwed up in 2016, but they're really holding everyone accountable. Now that Trump's president's like, no, it's the same. It, we're the same people. you know we're the same people <laughs> living with the same demands in our news organizations. We're in the same kind of cycle. And so uh, you know there is this I think especially among liberals this sense that like everything that we covered during the campaign was was terrible and gave rise to Trump and everything after has been heroic. and I don't think that's the case. I mean I think I think we're the same the same industry, the same people operating under the same tensions and pressures. What
3: did you think during the campaign? You, you have some really interesting uh, just moments where Trump enters your narrative specifically. Mm-hmm. Where he uh, there's this there's this story you relate where he just calls you on the phone some morning because he knows you watch The Apprentice. And he wants to know if you think Arnold Schwarzenegger will be as good at it as he was. Can you just tell me that story in a little bit more detail?
2: Yeah. I mean, I was working on the, I was covering Hillary's speech. Remember, she gave a great foreign policy speech in which she said he's like, you can't be a man who could be baited with a tweet shouldn't be a president. And and she was very it was one of her toughest. And uh, and then we talked about that. And he asked, then he heard he, I had watched The Apprentice. So he had also called to ask uh, to chat about The Apprentice and ask if I thought, yeah, ask if I thought Schwarzenegger was going to be as good as him. You know, everyone in our a lot of people in our newsroom, I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people on the politics desk have some experience of like waiting in line Starbucks, or being on the elliptical, and seeing no caller ID on their phone, and hearing "Hi, it's it's Donald Trump," um, and, and that was something I think none of us had with, with Hillary coverage. But um, no, for all of his kind of bashing of the First Amendment and incredibly dangerous, degrading of media uh, publicly, he would he would get on the phone quite willingly. Let me ask you
3: about the the one of the other candidates in the race. So you have a pretty complicated relationship with Hillary in the book. I think in some ways you have a complicated relate. Like you, you clearly have some interest or um, bemusement at, at some of Trump yeah, your relationship not so much with Bernie Sanders in the book but with Bernie Sanders's supporters there's a lot of um I, I would say there's a lot of anger actually as I read it like a lot of like a like a feeling of real that that you took a lot of abuse and that that something was toxic there in in the relationship you had with that community. I'm I'm curious to hear you reflect on that.
2: Um yeah, I mean it was pretty it was pretty brutal. Um the Bernie Bros as they're called, I don't think they were all men, but we the women who covered Hillary were, you know, relentlessly abused online um on phone calls, emails. It was before California voted but when Hillary had officially clinched the the number of delegates to become the nominee um, the AP called it The Times wrote it um, we got we got death threats um I, I got voicemail saying we're gonna hunt you down in the streets. yeah, I mean it's funny I've had some friends kind of liberal friends in Hollywood read it who said liberals were doing this to you It's like yes abusing reporters and being nasty is an equal opportunity. Uh, Ranges the whole landscape of the of the political spectrum, um, and so it was it was pretty relentless and extremely uh, tinged in sexism.
3: You were obviously the Clinton reporter, but do, do you think that the backlash that came from the Sanders side was worse? And I, I want to say, like, this is a behavior on the fringe, right? Most people, the right. overwhelming majority of people who supported Bernie Sanders, were just people supporting Bernie Sanders. But right. all the campaigns, Donald Trump's campaign, I mean, I got. I mean, I had my head photoshopped on all kinds of anti-Semitic oh, things. Oh, I got anti You know, from, from all right alt-right yeah. stuff. Like, yeah. do you think there was reading the book? I think my impression was that what you got from the Sanders side felt qualitatively worse to you than what came from from any other direction. Is, is that is that accurate? Do you think there was something worse going on in that subculture than there was in sort of the Hillary bots, or there was in the Trump supporting alt-right?
2: The interesting thing is I didn't really notice the Hillary bots, as you call them, until after the campaign. I think like her supporters got really angry, and I think that that wound is still very much open, got angry after the campaign. I mean, I didn't hear—I didn't get a lot from either side on on people supporting or defending her or ha- attacking us on her behalf. It was mostly—it was, it was the Bernie bros, and then to—you know, I didn't cover Trump, so I can't speak to that— like level of abuse, but I'm sure getting called out at a rally in front of hundreds of, of angry supporters is, is is incredibly traumatic. So I don't want to say like what I what I had was worse. I wasn't I wasn't like feeling threatened for my life. I was it was just a constant drumbeat of of abuse.
3: Do you think the media covered Bernie Sanders fairly?
2: I think we were a little bit late to um, to cover him. You know, I think it was it was initially sort of like the you know avuncular Vermont senator running and we'll do a couple quirky stories on him. I think it was it took a while to recognize uh, the momentum that his campaign and candidacy had. One
3: of the things that I felt was a way in which Sanders coverage is more complicated was that there's always a pattern recognition in politics. You you think things that will succeed that look like the things that have succeeded before. So both Trump and Sanders, who were ideologically out of step with what we've seen in politics in in recent decades, I think it took a lot longer for them to be taken seriously. And on the other hand, there's the the counter push, which is that, but doesn't it still have to work within the same system? And like, how how do you apply the rigor that got asked of Hillary Clinton, you know, oh, but will this actually pass to these candidates who... Almost by the nature of succeeding where others haven't, there is this impulse to sort of pull back and say, well, you know, if if an independent socialist can get this far, you know, maybe the rules of the Senate don't don't apply to them. I, I always felt that we were we were shifting very rapidly between covering Sanders too harshly and being too skeptical, and then like covering him too easily and not demanding the same answers we demanded of Barack Obama before him or Hillary Clinton. I'm I'm curious how you thought of that. If you if you thought we fell too far on one side or the other.
2: No, I think you I think you captured it. I mean, I hadn't thought about it like that, but you completely captured it. We were we were slow to take him seriously. And then when he was a serious force, we were slow to, you know, investigate him the way we would have other leading candidates. It was sort of a a twofer with Bernie. It was like we don't take this guy seriously and then when we do it was it was mostly it was and i'm not speaking to the times i'm speaking generally it was it was mostly like who would have thought this guy had this this movement behind him and a bird landed on his podium and it's all so magical um and i think you could see i mean you could see hillary's frustration particularly i think in the new york that debate in brooklyn i mean that he remember the daily news interview with the editorial board and bernie sanders couldn't explain the kind of how he would break up the banks, how he would jail some of the bad actors in the finance industry. Um, He couldn't expand on the policies behind his behind the tenets of his candidacy. And it just like frustrated the hell out of Hillary, who had thought out every single policy and couldn't, you know, get away with with that at all. I I actually reading her her book, um, I think she was more frustrated by Bernie Sanders than than Trump. I think she sort of knew what she was getting into with Trump, but with but with Bernie, I think there was a real frustration there that he didn't have any of these central promises of his candidacy thought through or backed up with policy and how he would do it.
3: What reaction have you gotten from Hillary land on your book so far?
2: Um, you know, I knew that there would be something. There is always something. I wasn't going to write a book and not have uh, rustle some feathers in that world. Um, I've gotten some pushback. I was anticipating that. I kept copious notes. I hired a fact checker to review all of my reporting, um, but I knew that there would be something.
3: Chelsea Clinton in particular said that some of the anecdotes about her are are wrong, um that she wasn't pouring the champagne. Do you is your view that that's not true or that maybe that is wrong or you know where 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 are you on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Chelsea. I I have interviewed her. I've traveled with her. I know a lot of people in her circle. I mean, all I would say is that, you know, I've been covering this family for a decade. So I have sources from Bill Clinton's kindergarten friends to people in Chelsea's circle. I feel really confident in my reporting. Um, I went to kind of, as you know, as actually Vox had a good story on this about how most authors do not hire fact checkers because they're expensive. But I I hired a fact checker to uh, review my reporting.
3: Although Clinton, uh, Clinton, Chelsea Clinton said that the fact checker didn't call her, but I assume in this case a fact checker called the sources who were giving you that. Like, how, how did that process actually work?
2: Yeah, I don't really want to get into my reporting process or my sourcing, but I will just say that, like, I was very confident in my reporting and then I went above and beyond and had someone else review my reporting and we feel confident in it.
3: What? When One of the things that is sort of true throughout the book, which I think is you bring this out more than uh, most reporters do, is that a dynamic that happens behind the scenes in all reporting is not between just the reporter and the candidate, right, what the reporter thinks of the candidate, what the candidate thinks of the reporter, but their interaction with the staffing around the candidate, with this kind of large apparatus, it begins to surround them. And the kind of psychodrama of that can often become almost dominant, right? Your, your relations with them depend on what you get. And do you, what, One of the things that is interesting to me is that Hillary Clinton has had a very loyal staff for a long time, but has attracted very different kinds of people to her at different points in her career. Do you think that the culture of her campaign staff is noticeably or was noticeably different than, say, the culture of Obama's campaign staff or of, um, you know, name your name, your kind of mainstream candidate? Like, is there something different about Hillary land or is it just bigger?
2: Um, I would sort of. Just the question a little bit because there's different I think I think of Hillary as different circles. You know, I wrote a uh, Times Magazine story in 2014 about how to keep all these concentric circles around Hillary around Hillary's orbit from imploding in this planet Hillary story. But, you know, so her campaign staff was a lot of newcomers, a lot of young people, a lot of people who are really excited about her candidacy and were sort of fresh Fresh to the perspective of of her and the media, and um, and very professional. And then she had, you know, these longtime aides uh, who had been with her through the White House, who had been through all of these storms with her, who she relied on, who she trusted. Um, her coterie of of as you mentioned, she's ha- she's had these people who have been loyal to her forever, which I think says a lot. But and so so there was also like that world, and I think that world was the one that was different than covering, say, Obama. I don't think that he has a few friends from Chicago, but I, I don't think any candidate has sort of built up these loyalists who stay with them for decades. And uh, and so there was this almost like this shadow campaign that would often travel with Hillary, that she would often turn to, that she would, you know, for instance, tell about her pneumonia diagnosis when she didn't tell the other, you know, the newcomers in her circle. And so there were there were these concentric, concentric uh, groups of aides.
3: One of the things that that you suggest about this world of AIDS is that it was, given that Hillary Clinton was the first female nominee for president of a major party anyway, that this world was more gendered than, and maybe more sexist than one might expect, that going up to Hillary Clinton, you sort of suggest she had a preference for male reporters, and then going down to these aides, you know, you suggest that they were very, 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 capable at playing on gendered insecurities to try to, to get what they wanted. I'm curious how you think, what you think that culture was and, and, and if I'm even reading that part of the book correctly.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think some of the things that if people have seized on as like sexism in Hillary's campaign, I want to be clear, happened before she was a candidate. This was when she left the State Department and she had a very small circle of aides protecting her and protecting the coverage very carefully as she geared up to run for president again. Um, I think that, you know, part of what I wanted to write in this book is is a really honest account of what it was like covering the first woman with a real shot at the presidency. And in some ways, that was really historic. You know, seeing Hillary Clinton clean up on those three debates, state you know, the first woman on the general election debate, and she really cleaned up. I mean, the debates didn't matter as much as we thought they would. She had a predominantly female press corps for the first time. You know, maybe 18 of the 20 of us who traveled with her were females. So there, there were all these historic aspects of her candidacy. But at the same time, there was a lot of the old hazards of reporting while female, you know, the old boys club that has been. And it's not about Hillary. It's about every every campaign in modern history. You know, we we would have the same the same pitfalls. So I think that was sort of what I wanted to get at and why I highlighted some of their their tactics. On one hand, you had this historic candidacy and on the other you had kind of the same old stuff. I mean, I I said when she left the State Department and she was picking up a bunch of awards at charity galas and and women's groups. And she was delivering inspiring speeches about standing up to bullies. And I would often apply Hillary's own advice to dealing with her, with her aides.
3: What was her advice?
2: You know, when she would give when she gives speeches at women and girls groups or pick up awards from women's organizations and give speeches about standing up to bullies and, you know, fighting for your career or whatever it is that you want. I would often I don't remember the exact quotes, but I would often think of her advice while I would then, you know, wrestle with her her own aids.
3: That kind of like amazing little dynamic there seems like a reasonable place to, to to close. So let me ask you then at the end of this podcast, I always ask people for book recommendations. But you were saying at the start that you had really read into the the literature of campaigns, um, all these campaign travel logs from years past. So what are what are three? If you're a political obsessive and you'd like to read about and you'd like to read some of these great campaign books, what are three campaign books you would recommend in addition to Chasing Hillary that people read? <laughs>
2: I mean, there's the the tome on the 1988 campaign. Richard Ben Kramer's what it takes um, is it is obviously a classic. Um, I like Gary Willis's um, Nixon agonistas. I would recommend uh, for Hillary coverage. I think Carl Bernstein's book is good. um, If you want a biography of Hillary, boys on the bus. It was fascinating to go back to read boys on the bus because the only time you see any women, they're picking up their husbands after a big primary night or a debate night. They're at the car, picking them up, bring them home to a fresh-cooked pot roast. So, um, yeah, those are some of my book recommendations.
3: Amy Chozik, thank you very much.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: Thank you to Amy Chozik. Thank you, as always, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, to Topher Ruth here at Berkeley, who uh, helped us record this podcast, and to all of you for tuning in. The Ezra Klein, will be back shortly.